The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly, gracious, and loving Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity to gather in the name of Thy Son, Jesus. Open the truth and power of Thy Holy Word to us. Place within our hearts the fruits of faith. We pray that these roots would grow deeply within us and bear forth much fruit in our lives. Bless those, Lord, who do not know Thee. Bring them to Thee. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, please be seated. Thank you for being here. We're going to end a bit early today at 3 o'clock. Um, today we're looking at the sacrament of baptism. Um, one thing I truly thought that all Christians held in common was a theology of baptism. Um, and it wasn't until I started dating this um, beautiful Baptist girl that I realized that that is far from the truth. Um, the great irony is that um, Baptists, Southern Baptists, uh, in many ways really don't have a theology of baptism, per se, and that's the irony. Um, I was under the impression growing up, and even in ecumenical study, that you know, we were all in agreement that, that baptism was, at the very least, a means of grace, um, a way uh, through which God reached into uh, uh, our lives through His creation uh, to bring us into His covenant, to mark us as His own, to make us His children by adoption, to make us heirs of the kingdom. And I found uh, that that was, was not true. And, um, but, you know, it was actually a wonderful thing because I never really had to articulate it much because I assumed that this is what all Christians believed. And so to find out that this is not really true really made me have to dive into the Holy Scriptures, to look back at the writings of the early church fathers, to study the ancient liturgies and see how these liturgies used in a liturgical context certain writings referring to baptism. And so what does the Holy Scripture scriptures say about the sacrament of holy baptism? What did the early church believe about Holy baptism. How was it used? Um, questions such as, does holy baptism have any uh, real impact upon one's salvation? Um, does one have to be baptized in order to be saved? And so um, this is what we're going to be looking at today over the next two hours and 45 minutes. So we're going to begin by looking at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Now, this is the, an important point. If you were about to die, 
within, let's say, a minute, and you were conscious, I won't, we won't pick on you. Praveen's on his way out. Okay. Oh, he has? Pick somebody else. They're way too young. They're going to get nervous. Uh, all right. Go for it. Deacon Susie's on her way out. We're sorry, Suze. Uh, and she she has a minute, and she's she's conscious, and she's able to communicate. And her three children are around her, whom she loves dearly. Do you think in that minute, she knows she has a minute to share, that what she is going to say to them is important? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. But, you know, the fact is, is that if she were about to die and she were conscious, she was conscious, and she was, you know, with it, and was able to articulate, she's not going to use that minute to shoot the breeze. She's going to communicate things that are of utmost importance to her children, things that are essential to them for their life. In this chapter of Matthew, we have Jesus not about to die, but about to ascend into heaven. He is communicating directly with his disciples for the last time. Now, he will communicate to them through the Father's Holy Spirit, he will communicate mystically to St. Paul. Uh, um, but this is the last time he is going to speak to his disciples. This is what he leaves them with, okay? Whenever Christine and I talk on the phone, I mention this in the sermon, no matter what the conversation is, we always end it with, I love you, God bless you, and then we hang up. Just in case that that is the last time we speak, that's what we want to leave each other with. Okay. Um, so, beginning, well, let's start at, at, at verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, that term there, they worshipped him, what is this? acknowledging this act of worshiping him what is it acknowledging yes that his divinity that he is lord okay they are worshiping and yet we would say it's amazing to us to acknowledge that some were still doubting and yet we we do do this as human beings when we, things are, aren't going the way we expected them to go, and it brings in confusion and, and doubt. Okay. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Where is the authority of Jesus coming from? The Father. Right, from God the Father. God the Father has given this to him. This is a reference to two things. One, to the Father as the fountain or source of the Godhead. There is an order within the Trinity, 
And remember, in the patristic mind, order does not necessarily deem inequality. So all three persons of the one God are equal, and yet there is an order within the Godhead. The Father is the source and the fountain of the Godhead, from whom the Son is eternally begotten and from whom the Spirit eternally proceeds. And so the source of God's authority would be the Father. And he bestows it upon his Son. Okay, But it's also a reference to the Incarnation. That the second person of the Holy Trinity, um, in humility, humbled himself. Think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Though he was equal with God, He did not claim equality with God, something to be grasped. In some translations, um, as something to be exploited. He didn't want to exploit his equality with God. But rather, he humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave. Okay, And so he, in the incarnation, humbles himself and becomes wholly obedient to the Father. Okay. Any any questions here or thoughts or everyone's following? Okay. I was hoping for a question so I could eat my celery. All right. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What's that a reference to? All of creation. All of creation. Heaven and earth is a way of saying what is spiritual. And what is physical? The created realm. Okay? Go, therefore. So here's the commission. This is known as the Great Commission. They are being sent. Now, the word apostle, with a small a, simply means one who is sent with authority. So here is, in one sense, the apostolic mission of the church. To go. To go. Okay. Um, This is just to distinguish capital A Apostle, which is the office of Apostle. Okay. We are all, in one sense, Apostles, in that by our faith in Christ and through our baptism, we are literally sent into the world. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, that word um, disciple has the same root as the word discipline. Okay? To be under an authority. This is something that, sadly, is very foreign to us in our church, this idea that we are under an authority. It's one of the things that I'm I'm hoping will be accomplished through the commissioning services that we're now doing in the church where people uh, profess in front of the community to place themselves under the authority of whoever is running that ministry and the rector and the bishop and, of course, the word of God, etc., etc. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to place oneself under the authority of Christ. Okay. 
So go, we are sent, make disciples. That is, bring people in their disordered life under the authority of Christ who brings order. Of all nations. Why is that huge? Of all nations. Exactly. This is huge. The covenant, which we're, is, we're about to see, is related to baptism. The covenant is not only for the Jews. It is for all peoples. All peoples are now called into relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, how do you do this? And he says, baptizing them. Now, the word baptize means literally to immerse. So one is immersed into the name of God. When one takes on a person's name, they take on their what? Identity. And they literally understand their identity as in that person, okay? I, probably not the best example to use, but when a woman marries a man, right, she would traditionally, before hyphens were invented, she would, they would traditionally take that name. And the idea was that, you know, they now belong to that person and have become a family. There's been a, not only do they find their identity in that person, but there's been a change in their identity. And this is the same idea. You are literally being immersed into the life of the one in whose name you are baptized. Okay, you are being immersed into their life. Okay, so in the name... That is a change literally in your identity. This is why, for example, when Abram, his name is changed to Abraham, Sarai. Um, anyone know the Hebrew? Would it be Sarai or Seri? Well, uh, what, what, what's his name? Uh, Tom Cruise and his, his former wife went with Seri, I think, with their daughter. But I... Uh, Suri? All right, so it's not spelled the same way? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, but Sarai to Sarah. Cephas to Peter. Saul to Paul. Okay, what, what does this indicate when there's a name change? Identity change. An identity change, Sarai. right. Sarai, thank you. Excellent point, Bob. When you come under the, the name of a king in the kingdom, you're under his protection. Excellent point, Bob. Bobby. Well done. Um, so it, it shows a, a change in identity. So when you are immersed into the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your identity is now found in the Trinity, in the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You come under the protection of God. You become a family member of God. 
um, your identity is found in God. Okay? You identify with God. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Clearly the belief is in one God, and yet it's also very clear by the way it is written in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that there are three distinct persons here. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That is part of discipleship. One is baptized and then they grow in the faith of Christ more and more and more. That's part of discipleship, to grow in one's faith. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So he is with us, he walks with us, um, and, um, and that is, there is the end of the, the gospel. Now, some have um, said, well, there is some question whether or not the Great Commission here was added, particularly the, uh, the, the part, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to uh, the original manuscripts. To quote, and probably the only time I ever will, uh, Joe Biden, that's a bunch of malarkey. Okay? The fact is, is it's not as clear as they say that all the earliest manuscripts had it absent and then suddenly it appeared in. Um, that is not true. That was widely believed in the 70s and 80s and has been, through scholarship, shown to be not as clear as they thought it was. But also, we must remember that the way it is written now, as we have it here, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is the way it was received in the canon by the church. Okay? So it's not a, a, a matter of just... What, what did Matthew write? But what was received as canonical by the church? And clearly from the apostolic age, the Trinitarian formula here is in there and is received by the church as being the word of God. And that's what matters uh, most. Okay. And so um, does everyone follow that? that line of thinking is that this is what was received by the church. The other debate is an academic debate. It's interesting to compare manuscripts and partial manuscripts and what was here in Alexandria and what was there and and so forth and so on. But what was received by the church includes this. And so it rightly articulates the faith revealed to the apostles by Jesus Christ and received by the apostolic community and the church in the first generation. That's what makes it authoritative and canonical, is that it rightly articulates the faith. Okay. However, that argument isn't as needed as much as most people think because it's not like all the ancient most ancient documents don't have it, and then suddenly, poof, it appears. 
Anyone want to respond to that? No, that it was that it was added that the Trinitarian formula. Some scholars said that um, that the early church was baptizing following a formula, a baptismal formula. They'd baptize using water, and they'd baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, when manuscripts were being copied, um, they took that formula, which was so familiar. And put it right into you know into the text, um, and uh, so that that's where it comes from you know. So that's the argument. So it's not a matter of there being other words there, and then it was changed. But you know whether or not it said go forth and 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 baptize, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I commanded you. And so, whether the Trinitarian formula was there was the was the um, was the actual uh, 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 question, um, um, but um, I would argue that uh, it's um, not as prevalent as was said um, with the more research that is done, but also that that's what was received by the church as being canonical. Uh, and by the faith of the community. Karen? Um, I mean, yes and no. There was some concept of, of the Spirit of God, uh, even in the, in the Old Testament, though there were, you, you know, certainly it wasn't within their thinking to think Trinitarian um, at that point. Um, and, you know, they would probably have a fuller understanding when they encountered the person of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, probably we could say to some degree they had an understanding. Um, someone who would have had no understanding, I always kind of laugh when I hear the Annunciation where the angel Gabriel says, Oh, Mary, don't be afraid. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you'll conceive the Son of God. Oh, well, I got nothing to be afraid of. One question, who's the Holy Spirit? You know, because she wouldn't have had a Trinitarian understanding. And yet it's clear that the Father is sending the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Spirit, she would conceive uh, the Son of God within her so the Trinity is present there. But we, you know, we see kind of foreshadowings and glimpses and partial understandings, but they probably did not have a full understanding of what exactly what he was talking about. However, he refers to the sending of the Holy Spirit earlier um, in, in the Gospel narratives as well. And in John in particular, it's good for you that I go away, because I will send, you know, from my Father the Spirit, you know, who proceeds from my Father, and he will lead you into all truth. And Jesus certainly speaks of, of, about him in a personified way, the Holy Spirit, in a personified way. So to go back to my original point, remember this is the very last thing Jesus says to his children right before he ascends. Obviously this is of utmost importance. How do you bring someone into Christ? Um, it's through baptism. But it can't be baptism void of discipleship, however. 
okay? It's connected to discipleship, ongoing teaching, and growth in, in the faith. However, um, one must understand what it means to be immersed into someone's name, that this is far, far more than just a symbolic action when one understands what, what that word name means, okay, to be baptized into someone's name. Now let us look at Mark 16, verse 15. Mark 16, verse 15. This is um, Mark's uh, version of the, of the same account. Um, um, uh, again, um, some people say that this is the uh, longer version of Mark, that Mark actually ended earlier, where the women run away from the tomb afraid, <laughs> and, and, and Mark brings it to an end. Some manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, and there, some have this ending. Either way, um, I would say irrelevant, because with the ending... This is what was received by the early church as being canonical, as being the Word of God, as having the authority of Christ, uh, as rightly articulating the faith revealed to the church by Jesus. Okay? Um, and so uh, we look here at Matthew 16, beginning at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, that is the good news, to every creature. Now again, go, to be sent, the apostolic mission of the church. Jesus did not say, go into every city, build a church, open the doors, and ring the bell and see who comes. Make sure you have Sunday school and coffee hour. Okay? It's not what he says. He says, go... And make disciples. Okay. Go. So that's the apostolic mission of the church. To go. To be sent. Um, where are they to go? Into all the world. Not just Palestine. But into all the world. And they are to preach the good news to all creatures. Now, we don't speak this way uh, anymore. The other day I was speaking um, to a person um, uh, about the identity of, of Jesus, and I said, you must remember that as a, if he is there in the beginning, and creation comes within time, okay? If you're present before there was time, then you always existed. And I said, so the second person of God, the Christ, the Word of God, is not a creature. And they kind of looked at me strange, like, you know, creature. And they're like, yeah, we, we, yeah, I can agree with you. He was not a creature. But that's not, we don't speak this way anymore. But when we say, you know, that about being creatures, that means being part of creation, so we are creatures. 
We are part of creation. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was present before the creation, before the time. In the beginning was the Word. So he's already there before there's time. At the beginning, he's already there. So if he's already there, then he is eternal. He has always existed. Okay? So he's not a creature. But he then enters into the created order, and we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. So he is both before the creation and has entered literally into the creation. Okay? So go and proclaim the good news. So the good news is for all the world, not just the Jews. Otherwise, it wouldn't be good news. You don't go to Athens and say, hey, want to hear good news? The Jews are saved. Yeah, that's great. Tell them we said hello. I mean, you, you know, it's only good news if it's for you. If it's for you. And so they are sent, apostolic mission, uh, into the world to preach the good news to every creature. That is, to all of creation. Now here, incredible insight into our doctrine of baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Okay, it doesn't say he who believes will be saved and should be baptized, which is the position of, of some Christians. It says he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Yeah, we're, we'll get to that, Bob, I promise you. Unless you want to ask now so I can have some celery. Okay. I was kind of hoping for celery. But anyway, he, yeah. So, I guess the, uh, the question here is how is he going to be justified in Mhm. That I promise also we'll get to. Um, the idea was that in Judaism, which Christianity is springing out of, is, is that... Um, one is covered in the covenant of the family. And then they grow in that. So the belief isn't always an intellectual assent. Because how could we ever then justify baptizing someone who is mentally handicapped? You know, or um, uh, however, it's not necessarily intellectual assent. But the children would be brought into the covenant um, at the age of eight days old and would grow and mature in that. And so that, that's where it comes. Um, but you first have to bring the parents to the good news. Otherwise, there really is no justification for baptizing the, the children. Um, so we see here the clear connection between faith, which is trust, and then the action. Now, very important. Who does the action in baptism? It's God. This was a huge awakening for Christine in her study of this. She thought baptism was the work of men. So you had to do something in order to be saved where really it's the gift of God. It's God who is working 
on you and in you through baptism. It's God who's doing it. It's a gift, not a work. Okay? Faith is the trust, and then God acts to bring one into covenant. Remember, we are an incarnational religion. So there is the spiritual component, and there's the what component? The physical component. Okay? The ultimate example is Jesus Christ himself, who made the very presence, love, mercy, truth, goodness, healing, forgiveness of God present in the created order. Another example. If Jordan falls in love with Mary, and Mary falls in love with Jordan, it's not just the spiritual part. You know, it says, I feel within my heart that the Holy Spirit has moved within me this is Jordan speaking now, that I am in love with Mary. And for Mary to say, I feel subjectively within my heart the movement of the Holy Spirit, and then I'm in love with Jordan. And then now they're one, right? No. <laughs> what has to take place for them to be one? Marriage. Marriage, exactly. There has to also be that incarnational act that is joined to it. This was also huge for Christine, and I'm not trying to be funny, although it's okay if you laugh, but when Christine said, I don't understand the importance of being baptized, of taking that step. I understand the incarnation and everything, but isn't it just important that I feel it in my heart? And I said to her, um, I was in uh, Illinois, she was in Virginia, and I said to her, um, do you feel that your heart has been changed and that you love me and are in love with me? She said, yes. I said, okay. I was on the other side of the phone. <laughs> I said, has your heart been so changed that you would even die for me if that was necessary? She said, yes. I said, okay. I said, that's pretty radical, right? I mean, that means literally you've been changed. I said, do you believe that this has taken place within your heart by the Holy Spirit versus lust or things of this world or chemicals in the brain or, you know, and all that? And she's like, no, I believe it's of God. So I said, okay. And I said, so a radical change of heart has taken place to the point where you are willing to even die for me, um, and uh, you believe this is of God, and I said, if I were to die today, I said, you, you know, would that, you know, have a huge impact on you? She said, of course. And I said, okay, so do you already feel, subjectively speaking, spiritually, within your heart, that we are one? And she said, yes. And I said, great. I remember it was a Sunday night. I had Mondays off. I said, I'm going to get on a plane, come out to Virginia. I have tomorrow off. If you could take tomorrow off, bear with me now and all those who will be listening on this. And I said, and we'll have sex tomorrow. Tell that to a Baptist girl. Um, and she said, no. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, you're right. 
I'll be so tired. We'll wait till Tuesday. And then she, <laughs> and she said, no. And I said, why? And she said, because we haven't had the, oh, you are such a jerk. She, you know, she figured out what I was saying. Because we haven't been married. So the spiritual component is subjective. Subjective doesn't mean unreal. It can be true. But the marriage is that marked moment of God's grace where we proclaim that the two, not by their feelings, but by the authority of God, it's a marked moment, a tangible moment, a proclamation that they are no longer two, but one. And now that oneness, that spiritual oneness, has to be nourished, realized, lived out, manifested, strengthened through the physical act of sexual union. But it can't come before that day. Right? Laughing, you know. Um, But anyway, I made my point that there has to be that marked moment. Right? That tangible moment. Jesus knows as human beings that this is so important for us to have those marked moments of his grace and power where he literally reaches in and through his created order to touch us. Okay? And that's what baptism is. It's the entering of the covenant. It is the marriage. It is the marriage. It, what, it moves it from something subjective to something objective. Okay, Bobby. That's why we call a sacrament an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual, spiritual grace. Yep, amen. And Jesus is the ultimate sacrament. He is literally the visible icon of the invisible God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And absolutely, it's, it's incarnational theology. And so, he says, he who believes and is baptized. That is like two sides of one coin. Now, unfortunately, in church history, the church emphasized sacraments to the point where they were almost like magic tokens. You know, if you're baptized, you have a ticket to ride, you're in. Doesn't matter, right? And that is like saying only this side of this quarter is worth 25 cents. And knee-jerk reaction against that abuse, people started emphasizing the role of faith at the expense of the sacrament as that marked moment. And that's like saying, no, it's the other side of the quarter that's worth 25 cents. And the whole debate over whether it's faith or the sacrament is like arguing over which side of a quarter is worth 25 cents. Okay? And the fact is, is that they go together. They go together. Okay? To prove, however, and this gets into Dr. Bob's question, that, how, that baptism itself, however, is not a magic ticket to ride... If one is baptized but has not faith, it, you know, that it, it's, it's the, the efficacy of the sacrament, its power, lies dormant, lies dormant within the person. Um, because it's faith that is kind of the, 
if you think of a dying fire and you know your air is blown onto it and it roars up, right? It's faith that, that ignites that. And so Jesus says uh, in the next half of that verse, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will not will be, I'm sorry, will be condemned. Why? Because if he doesn't believe, he won't get baptized. And if he is baptized and doesn't believe and rejects that, baptism is not a ticket to ride, free of cost. Now, that's where the church fell into abuse. That, well, as long as you're baptized, it's okay. Sadly, those reacting against it fell into the same trap. What they did was they said, okay, uh, it's not baptism. It's not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. Uh, it's something we do to be a public witness of, of, the, of what's happened spiritually, and that's all it is. Um, and so they say, however, it's when you professed Jesus Christ from the heart that you are saved. And then they took the next step because of their fear of works, participating in that, that if you can fall away, then you're always going to have to earn that. So they said, once saved, always saved. And so what they ended up is having this new marked moment of, magic moment rather, of salvation. Oh, it happened on August 13th in 1974 when I gave myself to Jesus on, on that day. And, you know, and so now that became the ticket to ride. So they ended up exchanging one magic moment for another. And what they lost sight of was the fact that, that um, just as love and truth are supposed to go together, if anyone has seen the, the new um, page that we have up on Facebook, today that was the quote about love and truth going together. Uh, I have that quote from the scriptures, and then I say, which I like to say, that all you need is love is John Lennon, not, uh, it may have been Paul McCartney, but I put John Lennon. Um, I don't know who wrote the lyrics, but uh, is John Lennon not Jesus Christ? But if all you have is truth and you have not love, then you don't have Christ either, okay? And arguing over what, what's more important, is truth or love, is like, again, arguing over which side of a quarter is worth 25 cents. The fact is they go together. They go together. Question? Yeah. There are two ways to parse verse 16. Um, one reading, which is the reading you're, I think we're working on, uh, is that um, if you don't believe, anybody who doesn't believe mm-hmm. uh, will be condemned. Another way to read it is that um, if you believe um, that if you don't believe but are baptized, you will be condemned. And the, a parallel reading a parallel parallel to that interpretation would be Paul's statement that if um, you receive the sacrament of has body and, and blood uh, unworthily you receive it to your condemnation yeah so one one could one make the argument here mm-hmm. that this has to do with a statement about people who are baptized without belief and those are condemned rather than those are condemned who do not believe. 
Oh, I see where you're going. See where I'm going? I, I do. I think it's an interesting question uh, and, and worthy of exploration. Um, my guess would be is that at least those who do not believe to whom have had the opportunity that, that you know, the gospel has been preached to them. Because the context here is that they're going out and they're proclaiming the gospel. So those who receive it through belief and are baptized are saved. But those who do not believe, in other words, those who have rejected it, so I don't know that this necessarily is applying to the Buddhists in Nepal who have never heard the gospel per se, you know. Well, right, right. Yeah. But the, 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 the point, the, uh, the, the issue is whether or not the division is between um, everybody um, yeah. or and those who believe or don't believe within the realm of everybody uh, or whether this is talking about the subset of everybody who has believed or uh, and been baptized or ha- and yet don't believe. And yet don't. I, my guess would be I'm going to go with the latter. I'm going to go with the latter. Anyone else want to throw in two cents? Well, one of the reasons I'd be tempted to go with, with the latter is because I have a tremendous problem believing that people of faith in other religions um, or other forms of faith are all condemned because they don't, they haven't been baptized. Yeah. Have they heard the gospel? Well, what does it mean to hear the gospel? Well, whatever that means, if they have truly heard the gospel, then I think that's a problem. Okay. Uh, Without defining what does it, only God knows that. Right. Only God knows that, You, you know. But um, but the justification yeah. for that reading, I mean, it's not just some kind right. of grammatical trick. Right. It really is to parallel it to what Paul says about uh, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. Yeah. How is it received? Right. Uh, well, you go up there and you, you take it. Yeah. Uh, but if you really don't believe, then you, yeah. you take it to your condemnation. Right. See, I've always taken it as the latter, that if one is baptized and at some point falls into apostasy and rejects uh, Christ, that just because they're baptized doesn't mean they're going to go to heaven, you you know, because they have consciously chosen to reject Christ. So that's how I've always read it. Anyone else? You were recently in seminary. Got any insight for us? I think you're right. Okay. Good man. (laughs) You're going places, Chris, I tell you. Get him something to eat, will you? <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, um, it's you know it's an it's an important verse. Um, um, okay, uh, now let's look uh, one of my favorite passages, Acts of the Apostles, chapter two, beginning at verse thirty-seven. So Acts of the Apostles. Only, probably not, because it's an important conversation, but it's a whole different conversation. I I would argue, but okay. go, go ahead and ask the question, and we'll see. Well, I mean, um, the mark of belief or yeah. the marks of belief are said to be uh, th- these these things that I just I don't know how many 
people who believe have those marks, or maybe they really don't believe if they yeah. can't do these things or don't. Yeah, do can you read it? Because I turned the page already. Go ahead and read um, it. Uh, and these these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up servants. And if they drink anything deadly, uh, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay. I mean, what I want to do is limit this till 105. And then no matter who's speaking, even if it's the archdeacon, we'll end the conversation and move on to stay on baptism because we only have the 3 o'clock today. I... My interpretation of this, as I understand it, when I say my interpretation, it's my understanding that this is the broader interpretation of the church, because I don't like to hold my own personal two cents on things, um, is that that's not necessarily, these are not necessarily signs that will be applicable to every single believer, but that this is applicable to believers in general. So at times there will be those who will manifest the signs of speaking in tongues because Paul says elsewhere that not everyone has the gift of tongues. Um, That in some places there will be poisons um, that they will partake of and and not die. In other places there will be those with the power and authority from Jesus with the gift of healing to cast out demons and, and, and so forth. But my reading is that this doesn't apply that every single believer will do all of these things, but rather that the church as a whole will manifest these signs. That's been my... Someone else, you look disturbed. <laughs> I guess I am disturbed, so I would actually then wonder if this was just because it seems to me by the wording, and of course this is not the original wording, but why wouldn't it be all... Well, this would be by believers, so it, it's it's the application that is this speaking of the like if I were to say at Holy Trinity, um, the, these signs will be manifest among believers. There will be those. I mean, well, all right, believers. There will be healing. There will be this. There will be that. So then, is that within the community as a whole, or am I speaking of every individual? And I would say that if you don't. If we follow the principle of not pitting Scripture against Scripture, so we have to look at other references that are similar, Paul makes it clear that this is for the body of Christ as a whole. He'll say some have the gift of healing. Some have the gift of tongues. Some have. So we'd have to look at that in the broader context of the New Testament and not just look at this passage only to to understand it. Bob and then Deacon Susie. Those who believe is a collective reference. That's that's what I'm saying. Versus every believer is, you know, is one. An easy way to look at it is uh, these signs will not accompany those who do not believe. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea that you'll know them by their fruits. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But not if those who believe has a collective reference. Well, no. If you're on one, 
Well, that's the that's the question. Does it is does is this distributed over every individual, or does it apply to the collective? Right. Like, you know, like Martin Luther interpreted some of the passages that you will be a royal priesthood and a priesthood of of uh, uh, of people that every individual is a priest. Does it mean that, or does it mean that the church collectively is a offering to God a priesthood to which everyone participates? But not every individual, in and of themselves, is a priest. You, you know, so that that's part of the question. I'm just going to look up the commentary here, and if anyone else has um, things to to offer, is it 105 yet? what's that? It's 105. 105. Over. 105. We're done. That's <laughs> some Well, if you have faith, you can pick up a mountain and move it into the sea. I've never done that either. Really? <laughs> wow. Powerless. Better that you don't come to Solemn High Mass tomorrow, man. That's only for the mountain movers. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I, but I think that's an excellent point, too, is uh, although that gets into whether or not this is a symbolic thing, and I don't think it's quite symbolic here either. I think these are literal signs, but, but that's something to take into, uh, into uh, account. Um, I, I'm just gonna, I am going to read this here. I'm giving myself a dispensation. <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to take up serpents refers primarily to the spiritual battle against demons versus snakes. Thus, Christ is promising to deliver believers from the power of sin and the enemy. Furthermore, this would include certain physical protection as well. St. Paul was bitten by a serpent and suffered no harm in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 28, verses 3 to 6. And according to tradition, Barsabas, justice, in Acts one twenty-three was forced by unbelievers to drink poison and survived. Nevertheless, while God's grace can protect believers from both physical and spiritual harm, to test God by deliberately committing harmful acts against oneself is sinful. And it gives references to that. So I, I'm going to go with that it's, it's applicable to the community as a whole. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, so now, going to the Acts of the uh, Apostles. Okay, uh, so let's get back into it. So Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse, uh, starting at verse, let me find, uh, around 37. Yeah, 37. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, around ver- uh, starting at verse 37. Now, note how many times the proclamation of the gospel is associated with, with baptism. I mean, it really is. We, we've seen it twice, and we're going to continue to see this, this theme. Now, when they heard this, who is they? Those to whom the apostles were preaching the good news. What is this? The good news of Jesus. When they, those to whom the apostles were preaching, heard this, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, 
They were cut to the heart. Very important, the heart. You've heard me say this in sermons before. The heart refers to one's entire being. Okay, it doesn't refer to just the the pumper. <laughs> okay, um, when someone says "I love you" with my whole heart, that means also with your their mind, their thoughts, and and so forth. You know, as I said to my sermon, I think it was last week. If I said to Christine, "My heart belongs to you, but my thoughts belong to another," that wouldn't go over real well, right? So when you say "I love you" with my whole heart, you're implying that your thoughts belong to them as well, right? Okay, you, you know. So, they were cut to the heart, that is to the core of their being, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So what are they asking? What do they mean by what shall we do? What's next? What's next, but more specifically... Yeah, in other words, we've heard the good news of Jesus. What, what do we have to do now to respond in order to be what? Saved. Saved. They want it. So the connection here between what we are reading and salvation is hugely important. Okay. Um, what must we do? That is to be saved. Then Peter said to them, Nothing. You already feel it in your heart. You've given your whole life to Jesus here. That's great. Go home. You're saved. That's all that matters. Not what the scriptures say. I'm going to refer you to my friend Paul, who's going to write this. It's called the Romans Road. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's amazing, in the Romans Road, which is used by Baptists, they completely skip over chapter 6 as, as baptism being essential in any way to one's journey in salvation. You really use the Romans road, it's great. Um, so he says, uh, they say, so what must we do uh, to, be, to be saved? I'm sorry, I lost my place, so I'm looking for it. So what does Peter say to them? Repent. That word literally means to turn the ship, it's a nautical term, around 180 degrees. So literally, this is why I think it's still so important that we teach continually why churches are traditionally built facing east, why we come in from the world, and we look towards the second coming of Christ and the fulfillment of all, all things. Okay. So repent. Literally, turn your life around. Okay. In other words, you can't just say, I'm going to come to Jesus, but my life is going to remain the way it is. Now, what's the fear of a lot of evangelical Christians, Bible-based Christians, Baptists, uh, about this kind of talk? Yeah, they get very afraid of anything that smacks with, of, of works, okay? Um, and, and that's the fear here. But, you know, the, the patristic mind would say, look... You, this is a simple fact. You can repent, you can do good works from now until the end of time, and you are no closer to attaining to the kingdom than when you first began if it wasn't for the fact that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to save you. So it's by grace that you are saved. But your response are the necessary fruits 
of your trust in what's being offered to you. Okay? So with that out of the way, so we don't get caught in that, we can move, we can move forward. So yes, there must be, there is a necessary response. You're saved by grace. Apart from that grace, you cannot be saved. But there is a necessary response. You must repent. As you've heard me say before, you cannot enlist in the Marines and live your life as a civilian. You cannot get married and live as a bachelor. Nor can you come to Christ in baptism and live as though you are not in Christ. Okay. Pepper. Um, so he says, repent. Literally turn your life around and let every one of you be baptized. This is huge. They have heard the gospel. They're saying, what must we do to be saved? He says, literally turn your life around. Turn from darkness towards the light. Turn from sin towards forgiveness. Turn from death towards life. Turn from the world and towards the word. Turn from Satan and turn towards Christ. Turn away from Egypt and look towards the promised land and walk through the saving waters of the Red, of the Red Sea. Okay? That is what he's saying. And be baptized, every one of you. Now, we're going to find out later that there's 3,000 people here. So here's my point. If baptism is symbolic of what God has just done in their hearts, how about we have three people come forward and be baptized? Each one can represent about a thousand, right? Because what is baptism according to this new theology? It's a public witness of what God has done. Everyone there knows what God has done. There's 3,000 of them that are coming to Christ. So, but no, he says, every one of you must be baptized. 3,000. That was one long service. Okay. Um, Let every one of you be baptized. And here it is, in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, so that your identity through baptism, you're being immersed in Jesus. It's the sign of the covenant. It, it really is the marriage. Okay, your identity is in Christ. You come under the protection of Christ. You're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are Christ's. Okay, now this is not, we know from um, the earliest writings, read the Didache again and so forth, this was not a baptismal formula. Being baptized in the name of Jesus meant Christian baptism. In other words, it was to distinguish Christian baptism from proselyte baptism, from John's baptism, which is not Christian baptism. We'll see that later. Big confusion among Christians about that. John's baptism is not Christian baptism, and we'll see that in a little bit. Also, uh, from pagan baptismal rituals, okay? So to be baptized in the name of Jesus wasn't a liturgical formula. It was saying this is Christian. If I say we're all going to pray in the name of Jesus, that doesn't mean we're going to hold hands and say, in the name of Jesus, and that's it, right? What it means is what we're doing is in his name. It's because of our identity in him. It's under his protection. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, 
there are Christian groups who will have renounced baptism in the Trinitarian formula and will baptize people like they'll say, Bob, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's actually not recognized as um, legitimate baptism. Okay. Um, they're called apostolic Christians. They were very prevalent when I served in Peoria for six years. Um, um, in fact, when I first got there, I saw these bumper stickers on cars that said, baptized in the name of Jesus. And I thought, as a sacramentalist, I was like, that is so cool. I got to get myself one. That's right. Baptized in the name of Jesus. I was so pumped. And then someone explained it to me. No, no, no. What they're saying is they were baptized in the name of Jesus, not in the Trinitarian formula. And I said, oh, man, I was so disappointed because I was like pumped. Like, yeah, baptized in the name of Jesus. What a proclamation, you know? It's like those bumper stickers. I love my wife. It's like saying, you know, I've been born into Christ, you know? Um, but it was to distinguish that. So Peter says, repent, literally turn your life around, and let every one of you, not some of you, okay, every one of you be baptized in the name that is under the authority and protection of Jesus Christ. What we're doing is in his name to distinguish it from other forms of baptism. And then what do you get in the baptism? When you come into the covenant, when you come into a covenant, you get the what of the covenant? The promises of the covenant. So what are one of the promises of the covenant that's established between God and ourselves in baptism? Peter tells us, for the remission of sins. So literally, as the physical water is being poured over us or we are, immer are, are immersed in it, we are being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are being at me again. Uh, you got family stuff going on today and brothers and sisters are trying to contact. Um, for the remission of sins. That's one of the promises of the covenant. Okay. That's one of the promises of the covenant. Um, the remission of sins. He doesn't say you already have the remission of sins. Okay. It's when you enter into the covenant. Because we are an incarnational religion. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And we see why. Because the apostles are there. And they're going to lay hands on them. And we're going to see this later. That there were some who were baptized by deacons. And there weren't apostles being there. And so they weren't able to receive that apostolic gift of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands of apostles. So apostles had to come down to do that, okay, which is what we call chrismation or confirmation, but we'll get into that later. And then Peter says, for the promise. Now, their ears understood exactly what he was saying when he used that word. When Peter used the word promise, he was speaking covenant language to them. As Jews, they understood that, okay? So what he is saying for the promise, they're, he's, they're saying, oh, wow. He's saying that baptism is, is, is a covenant. We are literally entering into covenant with our God by this, by this uh, action of God in our lives. Okay, For the promise, that's covenant language, is to you 
and to your children. Now that would not have been weird to the Jew in the slightest because the covenant was for an entire family. Now the sign was only for males in the Jewish covenant, but it was given to males when they were how old? Eight days old. Okay? But the women, whether older women or girls, children, were considered covered by the sign received by the males in the family. But you see, in the, old, in the New Testament, what was in part in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, salvation is for whom? The Jews. In the New Testament, it's for? Right, Jews and, and Gentiles. In the Old Covenant, the, the sign was for men and boys. In the New Covenant, who can receive the sign of the covenant? Men and women, boys and girls. Okay? Um, and so you have this, this fulfillment uh, going on. And we see this again even more fully as, we, we, as Paul relates baptism to circumcision for the New Covenant. So the promise is to you and to your children. They're, they're not saying, well, I don't know. Should, uh, we don't know that children should be baptized here. Okay, this was normal. If this is covenant, it'd be normal. Now, it would not, if one, though, however, received the covenant, you were in a Jewish house, you were in the covenant, you would be what? Brought up in that covenant. Every day understanding a little bit more fully what it is that you have received. So, unfortunately, the church went to the other extreme and just show up and we'll baptize your kids and you're good to go, right? That is an abuse. That is an abuse, okay? Um, you know, we can't, we can't have, have that, okay? All right. Um, For the promise, that is the covenant, is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off. Again, so for the Jews and the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So we see the language of salvation being used in this context. Be saved. What do you think is the perverse generation? You think it was like the 60s? What do you think he's referring to here? What's that? Right, perverse generation means the world apart from salvation in Christ. Okay? The new generation is the new humanity in Christ. Okay? So, be saved from the world. Then those who gladly received his word, whose word? Peter. Peter's word. Who is Peter speaking on behalf of? The apostolic community. So if you, if you hold the apostolic faith, this is what you would believe. Okay. Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word, that is the apostolic word, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added unto them. Unto whom? The community of faith. The church. 
the apostles. And then it goes on. And they, those who have received the good news of Jesus Christ, who have trusted in the apostolic preaching, the apostolic word, who have repented and have been baptized, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So there's number one. You don't come to Christ and say, well, it's me and Jesus. You enter into a covenant relationship. You enter into a family of God. You enter into something that is far greater than yourself. It's not a Chinese buffet, as wonderful as they are. Okay, um, You believe the faith of the apostles, not what you think makes sense to you to believe. You inherit the faith of the family, of the community. Question concerning the baptism that's described here. Um, and, and in Acts, it happens several times like this. That, yeah. uh, uh, granted, it's Peter doing the baptism, uh, but there is no class that these, these 3,000 people went to to get baptized. Yeah. They were baptized immediately. Um, and, and there's also a question that, that I have. The second question would be concerning. Um, there's no large body of water around Jerusalem. Now, granted, uh, it's, it, they didn't have a church structure at this point baptizing 3,000 people. But there's also discussion whether baptism traditionally meant immersion or, or, or not. Mm-hmm. And, and early pictures do not depict uh, immersion and baptism. Yeah. The, while the word implies immersion, most scholars believe that in the early church, and we see this again in the Didache, it says immerse if you can. If you can't, then pour. If you can't pour, then you know get a little. A little. I mean, they dealt with all these issues that the church continues to fight over. But most scholars believe that a person would... Um, would kneel down, whether in some water or not, and then water would be poured over them three times, over their head. Um, and the idea is that their whole self was done. And then when they you know, would go to rivers, following you know, John the Baptist and that kind of thing, sometimes there was enough water for full immersion. Um, and, but then as they moved towards colder climates, um, that became more difficult, and so the, the font was brought inside the church, and so it became smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, be, because of that. I personally like, while I don't believe that baptism is, is only symbolic, I like the symbolism of full immersion, that what goes into that water is dead, and what comes out of that water is a new, new creation. And so while I believe it's far more than a symbol, I really appreciate the symbolism of full immersion. I, I tried to do full immersion with Rebecca, um, who, who put, we had this big plastic bucket that we put in. She put one foot on one side, the other, two hands down, and was going like this to keep herself from going in. Um, Bishop, help. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, get down there! Um, but, uh, you know, and, and finally she got mostly wet. But, yeah, I think that, 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 that that's true. Um, and um, uh, 
uh, although I think I we did some psychological damage to her. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she's saved, so you know. Uh, so, uh, uh, what was the first thing? Because there was another good point you made. Yeah, this is huge. We were wrestling with this just yesterday. This is huge. What happened was, in the very beginning, people would be given the basics of the gospel. And if they were like, you know what, I'm willing to give my life to Christ, they were baptized, and then growth and discipleship would take place. What happened was, a matter of church history, is because of persecution, um, people were infiltrating the church, getting the goods on people and that kind of thing. So one way of protecting the church was that people then had to really show that they were willing to make the commitment and go through catechesis first and could come to baptism. And the idea has always been that if one desired baptism but died beforehand, that the Lord isn't looking to send anyone to hell. They would receive the benefit of, of baptism. Um, um, in the case that we're dealing with, with now, uh, for example, I would say that between the, uh, the, the bipolar and the extreme um, uh, depression and so forth, that that with the fact that when the person was thinking correctly, they were earnestly seeking Jesus and baptism and deliverance and healing. Would, the church has always professed, at least in the latter one, that that person would be saved. Um, and so um, I think you're right. And so in the Bible, it seems almost like, you know, a good 10-minute talk. And if you were willing to come to Jesus, you were baptized and brought into the community. And then you were, you know, discipled. In history, because people were trying to infiltrate the church, catechesis became longer and longer and longer to at one point it was three years long. Um, in practice, when I have tried to do the more biblical model, and that is say, okay, we'll do it. If you're willing to trust in Jesus and not the world for your salvation, we'll do it. And then we'll do discipleship, catechesis after. In practice, I would say that over 90% of those people, when I've gone that route, which is the minority route that I take, um, those people disappear. They just disappear. Where the ones who have to go through a more rigorous training, you know, stay in there longer or have stayed. Uh, on the other hand, this this just came about, where um, a, a young woman um, in the last couple of days, you okay over there? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, came uh, a relative and best friend of Marsha whose little daughter is not baptized, who was best friends with Haley. They were buddies. Every picture of Haley had this little girl in it, and every picture of that little girl had Haley in it. Um, and she came and she said, look, I was baptized when I was a kid, and I know you and Marsha have been trying to get me to come, and I've been reluctant, but you know what? This whole thing has made me, I want to try. I want to try. Uh, you know, I'm going to come, I want to try, and I want to have my daughter baptized. And I was right in that moment confronted with, do I go the road of catechesis first uh, and then baptize? Or do I say, you know what, you've opened the door to Jesus. So we're going to baptize you into him, which will give you grace. And then we're going to catechize you. 
And I have to admit, Bob, I'm torn. I get torn by this. Um, but I decided for pastoral reasons. I said, if you promise, 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 you'll, do to, you'll go through what you have to go through after we'll do it. Because Marsha's other daughter, Sammy, is still going to be baptized a week from this Sunday. And now she wants her cousin to be baptized with her. And, I mean, what, as Deacon Susie says, what do you do, shut the door to that? You, you know? But this has been something the church has struggled with, really, for 2,000 years. The chicken and the egg. Is it catechesis and then baptism? Or, or the 30-second elevator speech, baptism and catechesis? In practice, catechesis first works better. But you certainly can't make a clear argument from the scriptures that catechesis has to be first, as we'll see when we get to the eunuch, too. But all infant baptism has it working the other way. Right, well, that's true, Bob. Um, The catechesis, of course, is done with, you know, the parents and the godparents. But for the child, child, it is the other way. It's an excellent point. This command in Acts, though, comes on the heels of Peter's sermon to the crowd, two to 3,000. So can you not make the case then that, that the catechesis had happened through Peter's sermon and his, 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 the outpouring of... Yeah, at least some basic catechesis. But as far as Peter, there, there doesn't seem any precedent to say Peter saying, okay, we're going to establish classes, we'll be meeting after synagogue on Saturday nights for an hour and a half for the next three months, and then we'll baptize you. But, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but yeah, no, I think that there's definitely the idea of the preaching of the gospel. I mean, had this young woman come to me and said, I don't believe any of this, but I think, it would be, I think if Marcia's looking down on us, she'd love to see my daughter baptized, so we'll just do it. No justification for that. But her coming and saying, look, all of this has made me realize I, I, I want to open myself to this and I'm going to try, is at least, I hope, enough. You, you know, It was the decision I made anyway. But yeah, no, I think... But it's an interesting question um, because in history the church has taken... But the other extreme is the church got to the point where show up and we'll baptize you and there was no catechesis at all and you really had this culture of baptized people with no personal relationship with Jesus whatsoever, which is also, I don't think, where the scriptures are leading us, you, you know, so, yeah. The church for a vending machine. Right. Bob and then Sandra? Um, uh, it, it, back in those days with the, you know, the, the, the eunuch and the, on the chariot and this speech to the crowd, um, you really wonder how much how much uh, catechesis could be done, how sophisticated the was the theological understanding of these people that they uh, that they were trying to communicate uh, to those people whom they were uh, converting. I mean, yeah. we've got two thousand years of theology yeah. um, that now sort of gets communicated uh, in one form or another. Um, isn't, the, isn't the truth so very simple? Mm-hmm. And isn't it so very basic and so very powerful? And isn't that what's coming across in, in these moments? Yeah, yes and no. It, it's funny because as, as Anglicans, we go by Scripture and then tradition. Well, Scripture leans towards a simple application, a simple um, 
putting forth of the gospel, and then baptism followed by catechesis. Tradition tends to go with catechesis and then baptism. So there's a little, you know, and of course, ultimately, as Anglicans, Scripture has to trump the the latter. Um, and uh, um, and uh, and yet, it's not very simple. I'll give you uh, someone who I'm I uh, I'm related to said to me once. All that matters is that someone can say that um, that uh, um, they believe in God and that Jesus is their Savior. I said, that's it? Yep. No other requirement. Yep, it's that simple. Don't make it a big deal. Okay. Any Christian, whether Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, mainline Protestant, um, evangelical could agree to that statement. Right, if they're coming into into the church, you know who else could agree with that statement? Mormons. You know who else can agree to that statement? Jehovah's Witnesses. So, in some ways, it is very simple, and in some ways, it's 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 not. Um, uh, but there there weren't those battles to be fought, mm-hmm. those hairs, if you will, to be split. Right. Um, in in this time, the I think the notions that are communicated in the Gospels, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to in Paul's letters, as opposed to in the development of that in the early uh, Church Fathers, were very simple, powerful mm-hmm. truths that yeah. I think could be communicated in a chariot ride or in a yeah. in a speech to a crowd, um, and. The, yeah. the, the substance of the faith be communicated. Yeah. yeah, and I agree in the norm, and, and you know, we'll, we'll move on in a second. It's just complicated. If someone comes to me and says, look, I believe in God. I believe Jesus is God's Son. I believe by His death we are saved, and not by anything of ourselves or this world. I'm not sure that Jesus is divine. Can I be baptized and join your church? It, it's a, it's a, I'd say No. You need catechesis. On the other hand, when this young woman came to us and said, you know, I want to have my little girl baptized and I'm willing to give it a try, uh, I knew that wasn't the context. She understood. Now, despite what scholars say, I, I believe that when they're preaching here to mostly Jews at this point, and they're saying forgiveness of sins is in the name of Jesus, they may have not had any high developed theology of it, but they understood that the implication here is Jesus is God, because who but God can forgive sins? And even even the Pharisees said to Jesus, you make yourself equal with God. Right? So when we say, well, he says he's the son of God, that doesn't mean he's actually God. Well, the Jews understood that it meant that, you, you, you know, and so because they actually say that in there. So... Um, uh, despite the uh, the Jesus movement, or what was it called, the the movement where you know, we have to de-mythologize uh, the uh, the Jesus seminar. Despite all of that, um, I would say that in in most cases, what you're saying is 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 right. Sandra. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him as a subsection of the 
Meaning that he's going to call specific persons. Yeah, and 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 Chris, feel free as a graduate of um, of um, of Gordon Cromwell, as we say in Anglicanism, Gordon Conwell, to to um, play the part of the of the um, Calvinist. But I I don't have I just don't get into those issues. They just never have attracted me. Um, for me, you can't pit Scripture against Scripture. So if you can find things that seem to imply that Jesus has only selected some, you can also find passages where it says that God wills that all men be saved. Um, and that Jesus said, when I, I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Um, that he desires that none should perish. So I think those have to be held together. And I don't think you can come to a clear double predestination theology when you put them all together. Well, I actually think this supports that. Which? That, that it's everyone. Oh, you're saying that it means I, everyone. Correct. But what I'm, what I'm asking is, is, is the Calvinist view that that is a subset of the two prior No, help me out. Yeah, so within promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off. So the way I would take this is that means everyone whom the Lord God calls. So that that it includes everyone. But the so the Calvinist would say um, that everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Him is the subset specific for everything that came before. That it, yeah, and I would say that they're going too far in making that argument because you can't pit Scripture against Scripture, and there's other places that... So, but do you want to speak to this? Well, I think the question is, is, is that the Calvinist view? And I think that that, that is. Yeah. But it goes, it, I agree, it goes too, it goes it goes too, too far. far. To, yeah. Too far. I remember once going up to Gordon Conwell to, to do a mass or, or something, give a talk or something. We all went out to lunch afterwards, and they were sitting around debating... I found out this is the only thing they debate is whether there's free will up there. And it was going on and on to the point where I was silent, if you could believe it. Because, And at some point, someone looked at me and said, what do you think? And I said, I think you are so far beyond what God has revealed. It, you're, you're arguing almost like the whole transubstantiation. You're, you're way beyond what God has revealed here. That no, no. I'm saying that I think that they go beyond where the scriptures go. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, I would say by foreknowledge, Jesus knows who will be saved. You, you know, obviously, God knows who will be saved. But to say that he, he says, you know what, um, you know, my, I believe my mother-in-law holds this position because my father-in-law doesn't believe. And she'll say, well, he's heard the gospel and he hasn't come. So obviously, it's just not God's intention that he comes. So God has predestined him, unless something happens before he dies, then she'll say, oh, well, I guess he did predest- It just was for later. But if he dies that way, she'll say, God simply predestined him for hell, and he's predestined me for eternal life. Yay, God. Um, I, I think that's beyond. I think that's beyond the word of God, and I think Chris is saying he agrees. Now, you you grew up a um, Presbyterian. 
Uh, do you want to speak to this at all? Well, I, when I read some passages, I think to myself, hmm, that could be kind of seen as justification for predestination. I, um, and I can see what, what you're saying, but um, I'm, I've been converted pretty well. I'm working on it. Uh, but still, it's kind of, uh, why not, I mean, well, I don't want to open this whole discussion to, you know, why not, why aren't things predestined? If they're preordained, what's the difference between that and predestined? And, Mm -hmm. uh, which are some questions that I have, but uh, anyway, from this passage, I agree for everyone, for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, Jesus says that He wills that all men be saved. Well, that would contradict saying, "But I, I will that everyone be saved, but I'm choosing to send a whole lot of them to hell for all eternity." So, to me, your doctrine has to be based on Scripture, not scriptural verses. Yeah. It's that simple. There you go. And that's a simple application of the gospel too. You know what I you know, when I, I have to do my thirty second elevator speech, I say, look, if you're willing to say that you're trusting no longer in the world or yourself, but you're willing to trust trust in Jesus Christ for your life and salvation. And if I'm not dealing with Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness type stuff, you know, mainstream stuff here. And, you know, I, I would lean towards if they say, look, I'm willing to be catechized and discipled after, but I'd like to be baptized. I kind of lean because I am an Anglican, and Scripture has to be first. And I, it seems to imply that you should baptize them. And if they then don't live out their promise to be discipled and catechized, that's for them to answer to the Lord, you know. Right. And then he's speaking into that. Uh, he's quite after the moment of Pentecost that he's mm. speaking. So we would say that's a little, there's a little bit of something, you know, something going on there besides okay. just off the screen. An extended revival and an altar call. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's what I was saying before. Is that? That's what I was saying before. It. it that's why it's hard because these people had a context. When you said certain things, they understood certain things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, which meant that you understood that you weren't baptized into a me and Jesus relationship. You were in the fellowship of the church. In the breaking of bread, what's that? Communion. Communion. If you're baptized, you're born again, you've been born, you have to be nourished. And in prayers. In the Greek, there's actually the article, the prayers, Remember, these were liturgical persons, okay? 
These were Jews. They prayed at certain hours with certain prayers. They followed a lectionary. And so these people continued in the prayers of the church. They continued in Holy Communion. They continued in fellowship with the body of Christ, not me and Jesus. And they held the faith of the family, not their own uh, individual faith. Okay? All right. Now let's um, move to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. Beginning at verse 12. Do people want a break or can we make it to 3 o'clock without a break? You can make it till 3? Well, Bob can make it to 3. The rest of you have nothing to say. That's it. (laughs) That's it. Okay. 8 verse 12. Um. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now here's Philip the deacon. This is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon, the evangelist, whose feast day was October 11th, by the way. Um, One of my favorite saints. And Philip the deacon goes down to Samaria. And he's preaching to them about Jesus. Now the context is changing a little bit. You have some educated, some not. Samaria was a mixed bag. Okay? But he's preaching to them uh, down there. Okay? And it says that um, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So you have the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming a kingdom which has come. By the way, just a little thing to throw out there, a little bomb. It's not that the kingdom of God is coming uh, in part one of the second coming of Jesus. The kingdom of God has come already. Keep that in mind when interpreting Revelation. Okay, back to what we're talking about here. Um, um So when they believe Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, this goes into what Bobby was saying too, that when you're in someone's name, you're under their protection, you're in their kingdom. Okay? In the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So what was the response to the preaching of Philip, the deacon and evangelist? He proclaimed to them the kingdom of God, and then they desire what? Baptism. So what must much of his preaching been about when preaching on the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus? Baptism. Because they they desired baptism. So much of his preaching must have been about baptism as being entrance into the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Then Simon himself. Now this is not Simon Peter. This is a pagan, Simon the Magician. Okay, um, and uh, he was considered to be a big wig down there in Samaria because he was thought to have a lot of power. Okay, then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And this by a deacon. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Mark's not even I'm not smiling. surprised. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, so even this guy now, but we're going to see how someone can fall away when, when having received faith and baptism, however. Okay. Now, this is Philip the deacon. So they were baptized, but not, had not received that apostolic gift of the Spirit. Now, a lot of Christian churches get into an argument over when is the Spirit given. The answer is probably D, all of the above. There is, however, a special connection or apostolic gift of the Spirit that the apostles have that strengthens that life begun in baptism and unites one to the apostolic community, what we would call confirmation. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them, those who had received the good news of Jesus and were baptized, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had received baptism, but there was still a particular apostolic outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that connection between the apostles and the baptized. Okay? which we still manifest in what? Confirmation. Connecting us to the bishop in a special way, which connects us to the apostolic office in every age of the church. Then they, the apostles, Peter and John in this case, laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Spirit was given. So this is how evident it was that the apostles had the uh, uh, authority and power of God to grant a particular outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon baptized believers. It was so evident that Simon wants it. Okay? He offered them money. Which is, by the way, if, if I went to Bishop Harvey and Bishop um, Charlie, and I'd have to get one other bishop too, and I said, hey guys, I understand the diocese is kind of hurting. Yeah, well, I got good news for you. I hit the lotto. Uh, I can give $40 million, not even feel it, to the diocese. Oh, well, Father Michael, that is so wonderful. That's great. All I want in turn is the office of bishop. You nominate me as bishop and ordain me a bishop and you can have the 40,000. What would that be called? Does anyone know? Simony. Simony. Based after Simon trying to buy an office of the church. It's called Simony. Yeah. Which, by the way, I don't have the 40 million. Go back to the text here. Um, it says, we talk about the spirit being given on all of the above. Therefore, including in uh, at the time of baptism, which the text supports. Right, you can't be baptized without the Holy Spirit. You can't even come to baptism without the Holy Spirit already being at work in your life. But the reading here is, for as yet he, referencing the Holy Spirit, had fallen on none of them, mm -hmm. which would seem to suggest that the Spirit had not 
fallen at the time of baptism. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that's the case because here they'd been baptized only into the name of Jesus, and that's in this case the formula that was used. Yeah, I don't think so. No? No, I really don't think so. I think that it's referring to a particular apostolic gift of the Spirit that is to accompany baptism. Um, and, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit's at work and is given even if you're being led towards hearing the gospel. Then the Holy Spirit is there when you receive the gospel in your heart. Then the Holy Spirit's pouring out at baptism because you're baptized by water and the Spirit. But there's yet this clear, particular gift of the Spirit that comes through the laying on of hands of the bishops here, the apostles and later their successors. And so that's what I think is being is being referenced. Um, uh, yeah. Is it saying that because Philip was a deacon that he could not administer the Holy Spirit? He could not administer that particular apostolic gift okay. because he was not an apostle. This is not Philip the apostle. This right. is Philip the deacon. Right. An apostle nowadays means bishop, so a priest can. Right. The only time historically in the church, because oil was used in both Old and New Testament to manifest the Spirit of God, in the early church, because bishops, it was hard for them to always get around, they would consecrate chrism, which is an oil, for the, the granting of this particular gift of the Spirit. And so a priest can apply chrism. But there's still, I think, something to this idea of being having the laying on of hands in that apostolic community uh, through the bishops. Yeah. Is that what chrismation is then, as in what the Greek Orthodox do? Right, right, exactly. So they, when they get baptized, they're also confirmed, so to speak. Yeah. The bishop doesn't need to be there right. when they do it. Right, but the oil has to be oil. consecrated by the bishop. Okay. has to be consecrated by the bishop. Well, yeah. let's, let's take a look at the ordination process, right? When you were ordained, when Father Dwight was ordained, or when Deacon Susie was ordained, Bishop Harvey laid hands on all of them. Right. And that was the transmission or, or bestowing the Holy Spirit upon them. For ordination. So what is it then that prevents someone who has received the Holy Spirit through the laying up of hands in apostolic succession mm -hmm. to pass it on to someone else? Well, there's nowhere in the scriptures or in the early tradition of the church that would say that, that we can. We receive it to be deacons, to be priests in the church of God, but that it's those who hold these, um, the specific office of apostle in the church, and it's part of the unity of the church. Now, there was a, um, a time in the church in Alexandria, I believe it was, where there was a time period where um, presbyters, priests, would kind of get together to to do that and ordain the, the next bishop rather than having bishops come in. But that practice was never received by the church as being a, a faithful to either the scriptures or the tradition of the church. This was the big debate between John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley said, uh, look, we can't, uh, our bishops are so corrupt we can't get any of them that care enough about evangelism and the gospel to ordain priests. Um, so John said, in an emergency situation, he used the argument you just made. 
um, that ultimately the priests are an extension of the office of the bishop. It's the norm that it's a bishop, but um, uh, in this case, because of the emergency, I'm going to ordain. Charles said, uh-uh, <laughs> that, that was never received. You, you can do that if you want. You just, it's just going to lead to greater schism within the church. And they actually had a dispute uh, over that. Charles never did it. John did. And now we, the Methodists, which was meant to be a movement within Anglicanism, is now sadly uh, you know, another denomination in the world. But that very argument was held over you know, and what I would say is, even if John is right, we have nothing to point to to say that we know with certainty that he is, uh, because it was it was it's not clearly scriptural, and it was never received by the whole church, east and west, as being um, uh, uh, efficacious. So even if he's right, I I would say well, I don't know, so I can't do it. Were they both yeah. Priests? yeah, yeah, they were both priests. Serving in the Church of England, I mean, you can understand John's position. I mean, he, he, I mean, he was desiring to bring people to Christ. You know, you can understand his position. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, in in, in the Episcopal Church, and so Seabury um, was elected to go over to England. And get consecrated a bishop so that after the Revolutionary War, so that the Episcopal Church that was forming here, separate from the Church of England, but, you know, a sister church, could have the apostolic ministry. So we went over to the bishops in the Church of England, and they said, no problem. We'll, we'll consecrate you a bishop. Great. All you have to do is take an oath of allegiance to the king. And he said, yeah, that's going to go over real well. <laughs> so he said, I, I can't do that. So finally, it was Anglican bishops in Scotland who said, we, can, we will consecrate you a bishop without you taking that allegiance, which is why uh, historically in the uh, Episcopal Church flag, you have the cross of St. Andrew, which is, was the, the flag of Scotland. Yeah. And why our prayer book tradition is more like uh, uh, the uh, Scottish prayer book, which was influenced by the non-jurors, which were high churchmen, than it actually was the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which was a bit lower church, actually. So, kind of all kind of interesting stuff, you know, in history. So, um, so, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. So not every disciple is an apostle. He desired an office. Now all apostles are disciples. Not all disciples are apostles. Okay, There's order within the church. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. 
So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Okay. Are we ready to move on? Because we only have 50 minutes. Okay. So now let's look at the um, later in that chapter, beginning at verse uh, 35. Well, actually, let's start at verse 26, the, the, next, the next verse. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Just a little footnote I remember from my days of studying. Candace was not her particular name. That was the position of the queen of Ethiopia. She was called Candace. Okay? It's kind of like the czar. She's the Candace, the Suze. Yeah. There you go. In, in the RSV, it calls her the Candace. Oh, does it? Yeah, the Candace. Right, see, I like the RSV more and more. Okay. I like anything that upholds my opinion, you know? Um, so under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now we find out later what he was reading, the suffering servant passages, okay, prophesying that the Savior would come into the world and would have to suffer, okay. He's borne our iniquities and, and so forth. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? A whole nother lecture, by the way, that we need teaching in order to fully understand the word of God. But anyway, and he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. Here we have it. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and, and who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, this is important. He's reading Isaiah, the suffering servant passage. He, the eunuch asks Philip, what is this all about? Philip gives him his elevator speech as to who this is about. And you're about to see that suddenly this man wants to be baptized. So what must have Philip's preaching been about? how baptism unites you in covenant to the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah, which, of course, is the what? The cross. Okay. And he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So Philip must have explained to him that this passage refers to Christ who died and rose for the sin of the world and that you enter into this benefit through baptism, which is by water. 
because all of a sudden this eunuch knows all of this and knows about water and, and says, hey, look, there's the water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now, that line right there, some ancient manuscripts don't have the fuller line. Some have the fuller line. Again, it was received in the canon with the fuller line. I, I don't mind the fuller line. <laughs> okay, does anyone have it? Mine doesn't have it. Would you read it? Right. There you go. So, so to me, that's the norm of what's been received canonically. So for me, that's all authoritative, but I don't have it in front of me. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. This is kind of my, my answer to the young girl yesterday, although I left off the word all. If you, I said, if you believe at all in your heart, <laughs> your daughter may, and we'll take it from there. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, I want to point out, if baptism is only, as many say this day, Uh, a public witness to what God has done spiritually, to whom was the eunuch witnessing? Philip? See, to me that makes no sense. If you say, well, baptism is just a public testimony, and, and that's what the Southern Baptist Convention would teach, for example. Baptism is a public testimony to what God has already done. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's a public witness to the fact that you are already saved. Okay? My question then is, to whom was the eunuch witnessing? Because the only person there was Philip. Okay? Um, You mean, can a person baptize themselves? Yeah. I, I think the answer, in an emergency, let's say that, no, I, I, I think the church's position has been, you cannot baptize yourself. However, if you desire baptism and you're in an emergency, meaning you're going to die, mm-hmm. um, that your desire for the benefit of baptism is, is sufficient in that case. Um, because the Lord isn't looking to send you to hell. <laughs> you know, but for the rest of us, ninety-nine point nine, who are going to continue in our earthly pilgrimage, this is how it's it's done. But no, um, the church has taught that in an emergency, any baptized Christian may baptize you. Someone can't welcome you into the family if they're not a member of the family. Right. So a Buddhist can't baptize you into Jesus, unless they were at least once baptized, I guess. But and then that gets sticky about their faith, but. Um, but a, it has to be a baptized person who baptizes you. Sure. So you couldn't do it like if there was two of us on an island and we said, let's baptize each other. I'll do you, then you do me. I thought that meant 
because I knew that, that in emergency situation, somebody who was not ordained could do it, but they do have to be baptized themselves. So it's still in that situation, even if there's a hundred of them and nobody's baptized, they right. just would hang out in their desire. Yeah, they'd hang out in their desire. Yeah. Uh, They'd have to be in a boxcar. Yeah. Named Desire. <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, streetcar. Yeah. I was thinking of boxcar Willie or something. Go ahead, Karen. I mean, Mary. Um, like Christians in countries where like Christianity is, you know, against the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What missionaries are for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'd be pretty rare for them to come to the gospel unless a Christian's there. Sure. You know, I suppose. Unless they find a computer and go on the internet. You know, which the, these days, you know, yeah. could happen, I guess. The church is going to have to deal with that question, you know? <laughs> you know, what happened? Um, hey, um, Turn to chapter 10, verse 44. Chapter 10, verse 44. Now, this is an unusual thing. Um, this is, there was a great concern in the early church whether or not Gentiles who wanted to be saved had to first become Jews before they could receive the Messiah of the Jews. So did they have to first be circumcised and become Jews before they could accept the Messiah of the Jews. And this was a, a, a big question. God handled this question, okay, by doing a, uh, a unique thing, and that is by pouring out the Holy Spirit upon some Gentiles, showing those of the circumcision party, those who believe that they had to first become Jews and be circumcised before they could be baptized, that this was not the case, that a person can go from paganism immediately into Christ. You didn't have to accept the old covenant to accept the new covenant because the new covenant fulfilled. It's not an additional covenant. It is the fulfillment of the covenant. Is everyone with me on that? So we see something that's unique here. Okay, And it says, while Peter was still speaking, uh, well, let's go back a little bit. Um, Well, let's start there because of time. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now, these were Gentiles. So, uh, this is unique because here you got, he's preaching the word of God to these Gentiles, uh, Cornelius and, and, and his family and so forth. I think there was 12 people there. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. So these were those Christians who belonged to the circumcision party. They were saying, look, Peter, if these Gentiles want to enter into Christ, they have to first become Jews and follow the law, 
then they can accept the Messiah of the Jews and enter into his covenant through the waters of baptism. Um, but what happens is the Holy Spirit reveals that this is not necessary. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. So it says, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Why would they be astonished? Because the Holy Spirit was given to non-Jews without them becoming Jews. Okay? So this is, you know, this is pretty wild. Okay? They had received a, a Pentecost. Okay? And as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. God forbid. Right? I mean, that's what they're thinking, but here it is happening. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, which was one of the signs of what? That one had received the Holy Spirit. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water? I mean, look how amazing, how important baptism is. He's saying, look, if these people have the Holy Spirit, how can you forbid them water? Because they wanted to keep them from entering into Christ through water baptism. Okay, very clear what's going on here. That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay. So again, see the importance of persons who believe receiving water baptism. Okay. They wanted to stop them from receiving it. God revealed a unique sign. Uh, and then Peter says, look, what can keep them now from coming to salvation in Jesus? But how did they come to salvation in Jesus? Why did God have to pour out this important sign? Because it was important for the party of the circumcision to realize that they were, they were able to enter into water baptism. Okay. Um, it goes hand in hand, right? If, if, as some Christians say, it was just, it's just a matter of what's in, happening inside, then would they have even bothered at that point? They said, oh, they've got the Holy Spirit, they're all set. But he says immediately... Yeah, be baptized. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm just going to point out, we're not going to look at it because of time, but um, actually, Apostles 16, 14 to 15, uh, Lydia, who was a seller of purple things, uh, uh, that means she was a very wealthy woman because purple dyes, uh, you know, she was a seller of that, that she made a lot of money. Um, she believes in her whole uh, household comes to baptism. Uh, a household meant you, your family, your servants, your workers, and everyone who was on your estate. And so when the whole household was baptized, that means uh, men, women, children, babies, etc. Okay. Uh, yep, slaves and their babies. Everybody. Yep, everybody. So as far as infant baptism, um, that's just a little side note there. Um, uh, again, we see in the Acts of the Apostles 16, uh, verses 30 to 34, uh, the same idea. Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Remember when those in Acts of the Apostles 
chapter 2 said, what must we do? Here it actually says, to be saved. So it finishes the sentence. So they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, household meaning all of these people. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed on God with all his household. Then uh, um, again, this whole idea of household, Acts of the Apostles 18.8. Then Crispus, uh, sounds like a cereal to me, but then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Okay, So there's, the, there's that threefold pattern. Proclaiming the good news, people believing, and then being baptized. And this really being the initiation into salvation, into the covenant. Be saved from this perverse generation. How? Repent, believe in the Lord, repent, and be baptized. We see it over and over and over again. Now let's look at the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, beginning at verse uh, 1. Before, 18.8. Now, Acts of the Apostles, 19, beginning at verse 1. Now, this is going to be very important for seeing that Christian baptism is distinct from the baptism of John. Okay? So, this is going to be important for that. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Uh, hold on. Well, actually, we're going to go back. Um, go to 18, verse 22. And when he, Apollos, landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, in order, in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, I'm sorry, that's him here, born in, at, at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So he was a, a man who knew the word of God. He was a, a strong preacher of God's word. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, so he was in the, in the spirit, but we're going to find out later that he's confused on something. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had a lot of right doctrine, but he didn't realize about Christian baptism. He knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So those who, now the baptism of John was a symbolic baptism of turning from sin and, and preparing the way of the Lord. Okay, there are many that teach that Christian baptism is, is symbolic. But he had to be straightened out from, from that uh, fallacy. 
And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Just a little side note, some scholars believe he is the author of Hebrews. It's not a proven fact, but some believe that. Just a little side note. Okay. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Isn't it interesting that people will say, some churches will teach, that if you believe, that that's the moment that you've received the Spirit and salvation. Paul doesn't make that assumption. Paul meets these uh, believers. They're believers. He assumes that if they're disciples, that they're believers. What he doesn't assume is that they've received the Holy Spirit, at least not in that apostolic way that we were talking about before, that connected them to the apostles. Okay, He assumes if they're disciples that they're believers, but he doesn't assume that they've received that particular gift of the Holy Spirit. So did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? In other words, he assumes if they're disciples that they're believers. He also assumes if they're disciples and believers that they've been baptized. He also assumes if they've been baptized that they know of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Christian baptism is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So he can't comprehend how they wouldn't know the Holy Spirit. Because how can you not have heard of of a Holy Spirit if you've been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Are you with me in that? So he assumes if they're disciples, they're believers. He assumes if they're believers, they are baptized. He assumes if they're baptized, they know of the Trinity. The one thing he doesn't assume is that they've received that particular gift of the Holy Spirit. When I confronted Christine's former pastor about this, he said to me, you can't make doctrine uh, out of the Acts of the Apostles because the church was still in the developmental stages. I said, it, it's canon. It's canon, but that was his position. You cannot make doctrine out of the Acts of the Apostles. What's it for then? I don't know. Okay, history, I guess. Um, so they said, into John's baptism... So clearly distinguishing John's baptism from Christian baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is Christian baptism, to be distinguished from John's baptism or proselyte baptism, or pagan baptism. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So there we see that apostolic connection between the baptized believer and disciple and the office of the apostle. Okay. Which he doesn't assume that they have, because he's saying, hey, I'm an apostle, I'm here. If you didn't get the Holy Spirit before, right here, I can do it. 
And then they're like, we don't even know that there's a Holy Spirit. And then he's like, whoa, 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 back up. How can you be baptized? Okay. Um, uh, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So very important in our doctrine that, that if you are a disciple, then you're a believer. If you're a believer, you have been baptized in the name of Christ. That is, you have come into an identity in Christ Jesus. But baptism is not, John's baptism was symbolic. It was in preparation for the true baptism, which is by water and the Spirit in Christ. Okay? Christian baptism is not symbolic. John's baptism is symbolic. Okay. Um, again, to whom were these people witnessing? Paul? One another? Right? That, that doesn't make much sense, does it? Okay? If Christian baptism is simply a public witness of what God has already uh, done. Um, now let's look at the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 22. Chapter 22, beginning at verse 15. Okay. Um, a lot of people would say that when one has this major encounter with the risen Christ um, and profess him as Lord, that that's when they're saved. That's proclaimed by a lot of churches. And yet we're about to see that although Paul has a, an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and calls him Lord, and Jesus identifies himself as Jesus, that still Ananias tells him that he has to come to salvation through baptism and, the, uh, and call on the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And again, I'm going to ask in a few minutes, to whom was Paul witnessing? Ananias? Because he was the only one in the room. This is Paul, Saul, the persecutor of the Christians, who had some of them murdered, imprisoned, tortured, handed over. If anyone, if baptism was a public witness, let's drag this guy out into the midst of Jerusalem and say, look who came to salvation a few days ago. Look who's being publicly baptized as a witness, publicly, of what Jesus has done for him. No, Ananias is no time like the present. We can't wait. Why are you tearing? Get baptized right now. Not in a few days as a public witness. So I'm sorry, I know it's not PC, but I know they're afraid of works, and we have to be afraid of works, but it can't be at the expense of having a doctrine that's biblical. And saying that baptism is not efficacious, it does not bestow grace, and that it's only a public witness, a symbolic public witness of what God has already done spiritually, simply is not biblical. Um, so in, where are we, 22, beginning at verse 15. Um, well, let's start in verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Remember, he was struck blind for a time after seeing the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. 
and at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one. Who is that? Jesus. And hear the voice of his mouth. So he heard the word of God from Jesus, who is the word of God. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And he doesn't say, and we're going to do that by baptizing you in front of all these people. No. But he says, and now, why are you waiting? I love the uh, translation. Why are you tarrying? Why? Right? And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's not that he is already has the forgiveness of sins by this encounter, believing in his heart. He has to enter into baptism. Why? Because Christianity is incarnational. This is what Holy Communion is about. This is what baptism is about. This is what the proclamation of the word within the fellowship of the church is about. It's what liturgy is about. Okay? It's what anointing with oil for healing and the laying out of hands is about in ordination. Okay? Um, so, uh, so anyway, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Wash the water of baptism, okay, and wash away your sins, okay. Bobby. I don't know if this question relates to this, this verse, but somewhat, in that mm-hmm. Saul gets overwhelmed by the Spirit and then gets baptized. Uh, I've run across time and time again people who, in other, other churches, say you need to get rebaptized. Friends of mine, close dear friends of mine, have gotten rebaptized. Mm-hmm. What is that all about? I mean, from does one ever need to get rebaptized? No, one needs to repent if they have fallen away from uh, the gift of their baptism. But you can't be rebaptized. It, that would be like you can have a renewal of baptismal vows. But that would be like, uh, God forbid, if I were to commit adultery and repent and then come to Christine and say, well, now we need to get married again. Now, what I need to do is repent or die. (laughs) Of course, I'll probably die even if I repent. So the whole thing is probably moot. But anyway... uh, um, uh, yeah, you, you know, I don't have to be, you know, married again. We might renew our, our marriage vows, right? But that's not a second marriage. Um, one Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The church has always pro- proclaimed our faith in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Again, sadly, many churches... You can go from congregation to congregation, and if you left Pastor So-and-So's church and you're going to come here, you get baptized here. And really a misunderstanding of what baptism uh, is. It's a, it's a one-time deal. The only reference to second baptism uh, in the fathers is repentance. And what they meant by that is that when you repent, you're restored to the grace that you had in your baptism through repentance, confession, and absolution. 
but there is no other, you know. Well, I say, if you're cooked, you're cooked. As long as it's in the Holy Trinity. Right, yeah, with water. You can baptize someone conditionally. If you're unsure that they're baptized or, you know, something like that. A lot of the, I know a lot of people that are, when I was reading about the Anabaptists, who don't, wouldn't call themselves Anabaptists because they would say this is the first time it's happening, who said if you were baptized when you were a kid, that doesn't count. Don't do it again. And I, it's ironic how the tables were turned. I have some very severe Baptist friends who went out to North Dakota. There's a seminary there, a missionary thing. And they were Anabaptists, and they said, you need to be rebaptized because your pastor is not ordained properly. And, yeah. And they, because they ironically believed in the apostolic succession, but they believed it laid with them and not with the church, that kind of thing. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Yes, okay. Um... I'm going to read a few others because time is, is, is growing short um, here. Um, and you can look them up later. Um, from Romans 6, 3 to 5. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That is, you were immersed, you identified literally with the death of Christ. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into his death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. For, baptism being something far from sim, symbolism is something that literally identifies you. If we understand what the word identify means, literally you are plugging in to that death and resurrection. Bob? Before we end, could you make a comment about Well, we have. Uh, 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 we can maybe pick up there next time because we probably, if we want to get into a lengthy one, but only that it goes back to the idea that this is covenant and that for the Jews, uh, you know, boys would be brought into the covenant when they were eight days old. But the idea was that you grew up every day understanding more fully the gift that you have received through the promise of the covenant. So, um, uh, and then you have those passages that this promise is for you and your children and for the Gentiles, those who are far off, as many as the Lord God would call. Those several passages we saw where whole households were baptized. This would have been 30 or 40 people uh, in a household, uh, men, women, and, and children. It would have um, been very natural for them to understand it this way, uh, you know. But the idea is that you're baptized, but you, you have to be brought up in the faith. For example, when Brianna years ago was being baptized, her, her mom and dad at the time were, were not active members in the church. And they said, well, we want to get our daughter baptized. And I said, I would love to baptize your daughter, um, but you're not active members of the church. So I said, the only way I can do it is either you become active members, which eventually her mom did. I said, or you need to agree to give the spiritual care of Brianna over to someone who is to make sure she grows up in the faith. And they agreed to that, and that was Kathleen Demers, Brianna's grandmother. And so then we baptized Brianna. And then I went to the hospital right after that, actually. It had hernia surgery. But um, uh, she was very heavy. No, um, 
And, uh, um, but yeah, so that's the only justification, you know, of it. Um, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, that is, great sinners, if we understand the context of this passage, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, that is, made holy, but you were justified, that is, counted as righteous, in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. Um, Galatians three twenty six to 27 For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Literally, you have been robed in Christ. When the Father looks upon you, he sees you not in your sin, but he sees you in who you are in his Son. Um, Ephesians 4, 4-6, There is one body, that is the church, and one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Um, uh, Ephesians five twenty five to 27 Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Whole important thing for men to understand, by the way. When they say, I'm the head of the household, exactly what that means. Means to, um, to lead by the example of servant ministry and to lay down one's life in obedience to God. Uh, it doesn't mean, get me a beer. We're watching the game tonight. Okay. Um, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Um, here's the one with circumcision being related to baptism. Colossians 2, 11 to 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism. So circumcision was the sign of the covenant, not the symbol of the covenant. A symbol points beyond itself to that which it symbolizes. A sign participates in the reality to which it points. Okay? So he says, by putting off the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What's the circumcision of Christ? Baptism. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the, uh, from the dead. And then... Uh, Three, um, from Titus 3, 4-7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man, man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified, that is, being counted as righteous, by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, covenant language, Titus 3, 4 to 7. Um, Hebrews uh, 10, 22 to 23. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. By the, word that, that, by the way, that word sprinkled, is the same word for asperges, 
which is why tomorrow at Solemn High Mass, I'm going to use the aspergillium and throw water on you. The idea goes back to when uh, Moses would take the blood of the sacrifice and throw it on the people to, for the forgiveness of sins. The idea is that we are washed in the blood of Jesus through baptism, and this is a reminder of that baptism, okay? Um, uh, asperges, sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then 1 Peter 3, 20-21. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, which now saves us. And just to make sure that the, that the Jews who understood baptism as just the washing of the outside of cups and stuff, what we call ablutions, he says not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer. Baptism is the answer. It's the removal of, of the inward person of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a new humanity that's not subject to death. Also, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of, of God. So anyway, I'll send this to you. Of course, I say that at the end of every class and then never send it to you. But send it to you. Uh, yeah, Praveen and then Bobby. We know the apostles received the Holy Spirit. Do we know that the apostles were baptized? We know that Paul was. Um, um, we know that Paul was. We know that uh, Titus and Timothy, their immediate successors, were. Um, I'm trying to think uh, if there's a place where it says that that they were. I mean. I guess the implication is there, but no, I, I can't think of a place where it says, and, you know, and they were baptized. Well, if Peter says baptism saves us, he would include himself in this Yeah. Yeah, that now saves us. I guess it's just by implication. Paul, yes. Timothy and Titus, yes. But Bobby? Jordan? This has to do with in John, and I know some people say that you have to be born of water means you know born of natural birth, obviously the water of the womb, that kind of thing. But uh, in First John five six, I'm just curious if this has anything to do with it or, or something else. It's talking about Jesus. It says this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. Then it talks about how there is water, blood, and spirit. Right, and some translations say Father, Word, and Spirit, and, and that's a big dispute as to what is the, the actual one. It probably is what you just read, but it is disputed, whether that's a Trinitarian reference or not. And, but it would have to be with that and not baptism. If Jesus says Jesus came by water and blood, then yeah, it's not talking at all about him being 
Well, he is baptized, but he doesn't... One thing that I can't stand in the 79 prayer book um, is that so-called prayer book is that it says in, 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 the, in the waters of the Jordan, Jesus received the baptism of John. Jesus technically did not receive the baptism of John. What Jesus did was in, in, uh, initiate his own baptism, Christian baptism, that would be fulfilled, um, you know, uh, there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think that Jesus, he is baptism. He didn't need baptism, yeah. you know. Um, what's interesting, though, is, again, as Anglicans, when people say, well, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Well, being born of water means being born from your mother's womb. And then Spirit is the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. What we would say is, okay, well, let's look back to the early church. How did they interpret? And no one interprets it in the early church as meaning being, baptized, being born of your mother's womb. And then being bat- in fact, that passage is used in ancient liturgies at holy baptism, which sh- shows that they understood that to mean water baptism. You know. In that so. case, has anybody ever argued that people who are born of C-section or that kind of thing are not born of water? Or miscarriages. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Well, don't have a C-section. I mean, that would be a literal problem. Because, well, I'm born of the Spirit, but I was never born of water. So, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Is it still water? Yeah. That counts? All right. But then it would still be stillborn babies or babies that were, you know, never born, so to speak. And even if you don't count that, then how could you even make that? I think what Jordan's trying to say is it's not a legitimate interpretation to say that being born by water in the spirit, that water refers to natural birth. That's not what I don't believe it refers to. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God from whom. When we talk about being born of water in the spirit there, are we talking about two separate events? See, I, I would say what my understanding is that you're being born by water and faith, that that's what it, it's saying there, whether it be the faith of the covenant while you're little, you know. I mean, this was very interesting, and then I have to end, um, but, you know, very interesting that I remember in talking to Christine's pastor, and I said, so one cannot um, be saved by being baptized as an infant. Well, of course not. And I said, one has to... You, you know, come to it as an adult. Or he said, well, maybe a very young adult, you know, if someone's at 12 years of age and really understands, you know, then they're, they can be saved and then they're baptized. I said, okay. And I said, all right, so not even going down the path of what do you do about the handicapped child who's mentally handicapped who can never comprehend and all. I said, let's just go with the fact that you have a young couple in your church. Great belief. I mean, just on fire for the Lord. And they have a child, and the child is uh, three years old and sadly dies. I said, would you agree that we're all conceived into a fallen humanity that's, uh, that's out of right relationship with God, and therefore we, can, and we cannot attain to God on our own? Yes, of course. I said, 
then what happens to that child? You know, um, where we would say, look, we leave that to God. But if that child is baptized, that child is brought into the covenant and receives the promise. And talk about no work of their own. This is God doing it for them. I mean, that, that's as good as it gets. And he came up with something that, you know, oh, you know, well, even though they're, they're not baptized or uh, if they're a believing parent, the child, and he referenced David saying, I will see my child again. And I said, that's because David knew that when he died, he was going to Hades, and that's where his child went. You know. But, you know, um, you know, that was a real, I mean, that, that, that's a real thing. They kind of worked themselves into a catch-22 there. Because if we are all conceived out of right relationship with God and we have to be in right relationship with God to attain to God, ultimately we can't be, so God comes to us to save us, uh, and one must profess with the lips and believe in the heart that he is Lord in order to be saved, what happens when that two-year-old of believing parents dies? Well, the, the, if you're going to be consistent in that theology, the answer should be clearly that child's burning in hell for all eternity. That should be the answer if you're going to be consistent. You, you know? But it's called systematic theology. But we, but we are consistent. The ancient church says, look, we leave that to God, but for those children who were baptized... They they are in heaven with the or you know or in the fuller presence without getting into that whole argument but you know with with the Lord why because they received the promise of the covenant it's what God has done not what we have done on the other hand it's important not to think of it as some type of magic token you know where you can just go out baptizing people you know and you're baptized like it or not you're saved you know. Like, I have a sister who, who, who's Jewish, and she was at my house when we had our pool, and, and I said, you going swimming, Jody? She goes, I, I might. So I said to my brothers, as soon as she's in, you hold her down, <laughs> and I'll baptize her. Yeah, she was out of there within five minutes, actually. <laughs> These crazy Irish people. But, 